see all of you. Happy Labor Day. How many of you will be laboring on Labor Day? Yes, I know how that goes. Uh, I might not be getting paid for the labor, but I won't be doing work around. See, in our house, we have two, two, we have two lists. There's the, the honeydew list, and then there's what we call the two-by-four list, which means, honey, get it done before I hit you with a two-by-four, because it's, guys, do you have that? Good, I'm not the only one. Anyway, glad to see you. Uh, I hope that um, your Labor Day will be very restful as we kind of gear up for fall. I know we're gearing up for fall around here. Let me just make one quick um, comment about that. Uh, as most of you might be aware, we have rented some uh, flexible space in downtown Broken Arrow. Uh, we have been <laughs> on this journey with our uh, landlord. I'm not sure that there used to be in a landlord. Um, and so anyway, we've, we're, we're still trying to settle uh, a couple of last-minute details. The game plan was to do a um, uh, kind of a work weekend for both guys and girls. You're welcome. Um, uh, next Saturday, the 9th, uh, that's still kind of up in the air, so stay tuned. As soon as we have those details, we will pass them on to you, just FYI. Uh, but there's some renovations that need to take place in the in the facility, and uh, we are going to need plenty of help with that. So. Um, Stay tuned on that one. My first pastorate <clears throat> was a little church up in Wisconsin that happened to meet in a school. And uh, um, there was one Sunday where I, I got up and I said to my congregation, I said, I need to settle something because I know there's been some conversation going around uh, about this, but I just need to, to settle something quite important. If you are invited to my house for dinner and you are bringing dessert and it happens to be made with fruit, that's great. My girls love it, but please don't be offended if I don't eat it because I'm not a big fan of fruit. Okay? I said this out loud to the assembly. Right? It so happens, you see where this is going, right? So it so happens that uh, we had invited a relatively new family to our congregation over to our house for lunch after church. Now, I'm scanning the crowd like I normally do, and I see him, the dad, the husband, and he's got a little smile on his face. His wife, deer in the headlights. And I realized that she's bringing dessert. And it's probably made with fruit, given the look on her face. And I thought, oh, boy, I hope I got some ketchup for that foot that I just put in my mouth. <laughs> now, the woman's name is, um, is Nancy, and she was just a, a class act. And uh, before they came to her house, she had stopped by a local grocery store and, and bought brownies, too. It's just, and I'm like, no, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. So I'm not a huge fan of fruit. Now, over the last 10 years or so, largely because of the efforts of my wife and daughters, I have learned to appreciate a few more fruits than I've had in the past. And if you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. She'll tell you that it's true. I have, I have matured in my, my taste, and I don't mind fruit so much. There's certain ones I don't necessarily like, like, like others. 
Um, it's still not my favorite, but I'm bringing all of this up because we're starting a brand new series today. You see how that, you know, we just kind of meandered there. Uh, but I'm starting a new series today um, called Living a Fruit, you know, it's called Peeled, but we're trying to think, think about what it means to live a fruitful life. Um, because within the Bible, we find all kinds of plant and fruit metaphors, and we're just, you know, when, when God starts talking about producing fruit, what does that actually mean? You know, if we're going to live a fruitful life, what does it mean to be fruitful? We need to explore that a little bit, because it seems to me that as I'm reading through the scriptures, God seems to expect that his people will produce some type of fruit, not only in their own lives, but in the communities in which they live. So there's this thing that's coming up from inside of them and spilling out, and it, it's called fruit. And I want you to consider the poet. Here it is in Psalm. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. And I want you to think about that for a moment because it seems to me that this passage and others that are very similar to it, there's this uh, underlying expectation that God's people produce some kind of fruit and what we need to figure out is what, is, what does that mean? What, is that, what does that look like? In our last series, we talked about the priesthood of all believers, remember? It wasn't too long ago. And we were asking a very similar question. What does it mean to be a priest? What does it mean to be part of the priesthood of all believers? And we kind of came to the simple conclusion that to be a priest means that you distribute, that you are a conduit for grace and mercy. Ultimately, that's what a priest does, distributes these things called grace and mercy. But you start with the question, what does that mean? And so we're starting with that question now. What does it mean to be fruitful as a follower of Jesus? What does that actually look like? Very similar. What does it mean to bear fruit? Now, there's references to agriculture and horticulture um, throughout the entire uh, Bible. Uh, Jesus used a lot of those references largely because that would connect with his audience. They would understand what he was talking about, but we find it all over the place. The land produces and the people benefit. And probably the, the first real example of this where we, we see it as, as being um, uh, uh, just kind of in your face is the fact that, that the promised land that God promised Israel was a land flowing with, do you remember? Milk and honey. And if you remember Veggie Tales, it sounds sticky, doesn't it? Right? Yeah. Those of you who have young kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And ironically, they were just watching that one in kids' church a few minutes ago. So, milk and honey. Here's the passage. It's in Exodus chapter 3. This is where um, Moses is meeting with God at the burning bush. And here's what it says. And the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on, on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. 
So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. A land flowing with milk and honey. Now, now, now this, is, this is kind of interesting because, you know, it's not like there's these rivers flowing through, although I've, I've made the, the argument, and I will, I will continue to make, that I'm fairly certain that, that heaven will be flowing with Chick-fil-A lemonade. <laughs> I'm just saying, probably. I'm just kidding. But a land flowing with milk and honey. So imagine what this is. Where do you get milk? Milk comes from livestock of some type. And in the Old Testament, you measured wealth based on livestock, not dollars in a bank account or in a retirement account or an investment account, but livestock. If you look, Abraham was considered wealthy, and we know that he was considered wealthy because he had a lot of sheep and he had a lot of cattle. And so when we look throughout the Old Testament, we know that the level of wealth. So when we say a land flowing with milk and honey, it means that it is going to be a prosperous land. That's how this first group of people hearing this would have understood that. That if it's flowing with milk, that means there's a lot of cattle. That's a good thing. The second part of it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Honey is sweet. Now, in, in our world, where everything seems to have sweetener in it, high fructose corn syrup and the like, and we can go out and just buy sweet, that wasn't necessarily the case in the Old Testament. And so the sweetest thing that you would know, besides fruit, would have been honey. And so honey was uh, a luxury item. It was a... Um, happy sort of, not necessarily accident, but it was a, a, a blessing if you actually found some honey. And recently, I read an, an article, and I wish I could find the reference to it. I haven't been able to reproduce it, but um, there was a study done that suggested that all of the basic proteins and sugars that human beings need for a healthy life are contained in, guess what? Milk and honey. Interesting, right? Science kind of coming along and saying, hey, this is interesting. Hmm. Got another good idea. So this idea that you know, milk and, and honey um, is being kind of this you know, essential, uh, essential to the needs of human beings is pretty important. But the, the message here, of the land flowing with milk and honey, is that the promised land would provide for all of their needs and beyond. And it wouldn't be just in, in such a way that, you know, oh, I'm going to meet your needs, but hey, you're really going to enjoy the way that we're going to meet your needs. Does that make sense? So we've got this thing going on, this message that goes on here. But now, here's the thing, and this is, we have to be so careful theologically. I, I want you to hear this, because this is really important. There's still work to do. You still got to manage the cattle. You still got to brave the bees to get the honey, Right? Because sometimes I think when we talk about the blessings of God, we think that it's just shazam, and there it is. I am sick and tired of magic wand theology. It's just not that way. Sometimes there's still work that we have to do in order to appropriate what that blessing is. And from my own personal experience, very often the blessing of God is simply an opportunity. I still got to do something with it, but the, but the blessing is the opportunity that I might be able to take advantage of uh, in my giftedness and in the way that God has, 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 uh, has created me. God's gift is just very often simply an opportunity. That's all it is. We get this idea that um, God calls you to it. It's going to be easy. 
<laughs> oh, let me introduce you to some people in the Bible, um, and I'd be happy to have coffee with you and talk about that. I mean, that's, that's not the, really the way it is. So we've got this land flowing with milk and honey that they can take advantage of. There's the opportunity for them. But there's this notion that the land produces and the people benefit. And so we've got this symbolism here of milk and honey being the, the production of the land. But over time, the metaphor begins to change just a little bit. As Israel grew, the symbolism changed. Um, changed. Here's, here's the passage in 1 Kings. This is during the reign of Solomon. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, all of them under their vines and fig trees. Ah, interesting. Another agricultural reference. We have vines, grapes, and fig trees, which are fruit. I didn't, um, I've, I've only seen figs a couple of times. I didn't realize this is how they grew on trees. But notice what it says, that all these people lived in, what's the word? Safety. And so we've got the symbolism of figs and grapes being kind of uh, the, the underscoring of what it means to live in safety. Now, um, each household then would uh, have some, a certain amount of abundance and luxury because figs were considered a delicacy. If you, it took a while for you to, to be able to, to cultivate figs to grow. And so you could go ahead and plant the seed, but it would be a while before they would actually produce fruit. So we have this, um, this notion of, of, uh, of luxury, of delicacy. And grapes, of course, produce what? Wine. Hey, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but every major civilization, every major civilization around the globe have a couple of things in common. One is they have a way for, for people to be married, to transfer property is number two, and third, they all have a way of getting inebriated. <laughs> True story. Every major culture has that. So grapes produce wine, and, uh, and that's, um, that's a kind of an important thing, but but this is at the height of Israel's power and influence within the area. And here it is, we're talking about people living in that time frame, living in safety, and that safety is symbolized by the fact that they have figs and they have grapes. Now, if you know Old Testament history, you know that it doesn't last long. Because Israel keeps making choices against God, doing things that are outside of the agreement that he created with them in order to, to live a blessed life, in order to live in this land of, of, of uh, milk and honey. <clears throat> and um, as their power waned, <laughs> and they continued to break that relationship with God, they were eventually conquered and exiled. Okay? And exiled to a place called Babylon. And yet, God still sent his prophets to them. God still sent prophets who would speak to them of a time later on of a Savior, of a Messiah. And in a couple of those um, prophetic passages, we see some more of these references. Here's one. This is Micah. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Boy, that'd be great, wouldn't it? 
but they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoke. There's this language that's being used that would remind those people of Solomon and what they experienced under their own vines, under their own fig trees. He's deliberately pointing to that particular period of time because that was the height of Israel's power. But I want you to notice something here. Next slide. Figs and grapes, we still have the same thing, but remember, under Solomon, everyone felt safety. What does it say here? They would experience no fear. They would, nothing would make them even afraid. That's moving from safety to something else entirely, isn't it? Because you can feel safe and still, you know, have a certain amount of anxiety, but here when the Messiah comes, when he judges and arbitrates, then there'd be nothing to even make them afraid. We, we are on safety at a whole new level, turbocharged, so to speak. It's a beautiful picture, and it's all in relation to this coming Messiah. And so now, figs and grapes, the symbolism moves away from, from abundance and prosperity, but actually moves us towards something else entirely, balance and peace. What, what ancient Hebrews would call shalom. And this is the picture of that. Nothing to even make you afraid. It's an amazing way of understanding this. And of course, this idea of grapes and wine um, become a little more important when we consider Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2. I'm going to read it for you. John verses 2 through 11. Uh, 1 through 11, sorry, chapter 2. I want you to hear this. If you have a Bible, you can certainly turn there uh, with me. John chapter 2. <clears throat> On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. <laughs> I love Jesus' response here. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come, he replied to her. And his mother ignores him, which I think is really funny too. Turns to the servants and says, just do whatever he tells you to do. I know he's going to take care of this. Right? Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Huh. He did not realize where it had come from, uh, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. See, inebriated, right? Okay, dull their senses a little bit. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So now, now, 
grapes, this fruit of the vine, is not just about, about peace. It's about joy and celebration because the Messiah had actually come. A great picture. Beautiful picture. Next slide. Jesus, or God, is going to meet needs. There's movement within the text. He met the needs, and then it moves to what after that? Abund- prosperity and abundance. And then after that, it moves to this idea of shalom, this idea of peace. And then finally, we have this picture of fruit being that of joy. Simple grapes. And you thought it was just about vines. <laughs> but there's a symbolism that goes throughout the text about the land producing and people benefiting and God using that as a metaphor to move us along, to help us understand that it's not just about met needs, it's not just about prosperity, it's not just about peace, it is also about joy and celebration. It's all of these things. And of course, when we start talking about wine and celebration, that has profound meaning for those of us who follow Jesus. Here's the passage in Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And of course, this is the, the basis of what we call communion here in the Christian church. All Christians celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus with the fruit of the vine. And it's no longer just land that provides for us now. It's God's spirit residing within us and producing a new kind of fruit. Not just one that would sustain ourselves physically, but one that will sustain ourselves spiritually as well. There's this movement going on in the scripture if we, if we see it. And so today we're going to participate. We're going to partake of the fruit of the stalk in the fruit of the vine, and we are going to simply remember what Jesus did for us. Using these ancient symbols that Jesus gave to us in this very simple ritual to help us remember who he was and what he did. But I really want to hit the pause button because what I recognize is anytime we get um, in a group this size, Everybody's in a different place. Things are going on in your lives. I don't know, and I'm thankful that God knows. But God knows where you're at and what's going on. And, and maybe, maybe you're just feeling kind of, I don't know, depleted today. Or maybe you're feeling stalled, a little bit stuck. It happens, right? I mean, everybody experiences this. Maybe you're just coasting along. Things are going, eh, okay. And you just don't think about it. Things are just kind of happening. That happens too. Or maybe events of your life are closing in. Maybe that's happening. 
Maybe life is not exactly where you want it to be. For whatever reason, that happens. You wake up one morning and you kind of wonder. Today is an opportunity to reconnect to the source. Please understand, when we take communion and we, we do this simple act and we reconnect with the Lord, the effect might not be immediate. It may not hit you all of a sudden. If it does, praise God, that's really awesome. And we all like when that happens, right? But remember what the, what the poet told us at the outset. We bear fruit in season. Sometimes you have to work at it. I just planted raspberry bushes because my girls like raspberries. I don't particularly care for raspberries, although I have a sneaking suspicion that a certain six-year-old is going to make me take a courtesy bite or five. <laughs> but I planted those in the fall because they're going to spend the fall and winter putting down roots, and I have to tend to the soil and put mulch over the top and to care and tend for that in order for it to fruit next summer. It will bear fruit in season. So this is the opportunity that we have to reconnect. Even if the effect isn't immediate, it doesn't mean there isn't an effect. You just might not see it yet. And that's kind of the nature of this thing. And so my, my thought is keep connecting. Just because I plant it in the ground and the fruit doesn't show up the next day doesn't mean that I stop watering, that I don't stop fertilizing, right? Keep connecting even when it's hard, regardless of what the circumstances are. So I want to encourage you today to think through the movement that's in the text and when you actually take the bread and you dip it into the juice and you take it, take it with joy because the Messiah has come and changes everything even if you don't feel the effects immediately. Faith isn't a feeling. It's a new reality that God loves you, he's not abandoned you. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you less because he loves you perfectly. And by the way, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more because he loves you perfectly. And so as we reconnect in this way today, it's with joy because we're loved. We're loved. The one who created now recreates inside of you and produces fruit in season. In the Church of God, we have what's called um, an open table. That means if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to be a part of this with us. Um, there's no, no union card that you got to show us at the door or anything like that. That's not the way it works. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then we just suggest you pass this one by. I promise you, no one's going to look at you funny and nobody's going to think you're weird. This is just an opportunity for those of us who follow Jesus to reconnect to him with a simple, simple ritual.
And the way we're going to do it is, is quite easy. There's a table in the back. It has bread. It has a bowl. If you want to get up and come out on the sides and work your way to the actual table, take some bread, rip it off, dip it, either bring it back to your seat or right there. It's entirely up to you how you want to take communion. And when you do, um, when you're done, just come back to your seat in the middle. That way we, we create a little bit of a flow here. In the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus sat with his disciples. We just read it. And he took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take it and eat it and every time you do, I want you to remember me. And then after the supper, he took a cup after he'd given thanks, he passed it to his disciples. Take and drink. Every time you do, I want you to remember me. And we've done this for 2,000 years. And the beautiful part is, not only does this connect us to history, it connects us all over the world. Thrilled to see Abby Larzalier here, who most of the time she's on the other side of the planet. They do this there too. Although not out in the open, right? <laughs> yeah. Even if you have to do it underground, this connects us to followers of Jesus everywhere. <laughs>